Let's pray together. Lord, your first invitation to your disciples before even you said, follow me, was to come and see. Come and see what you are doing in the world. And so God, in this moment, I, I ask that you will teach us what it means to behold, to be able to gaze with the eyes of Christ, to be able to see through the lens of worship. And so gracious God, we pray that you will pour out your spirit, not just upon this moment, not just upon me, but upon our lives that we may begin to experience and to see and to taste that the Lord is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. And we pray all these things with great anticipation, and we pray them in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said. I want to begin by asking you to imagine Mary and Joseph still basking in the glow of those first couple of days of giving birth to a firstborn child. That moment, that experience of getting to savor the intimacy and the connection and the wonder and the miracle that is every new birth. And so they are in a humble kind of Bethlehem dwelling, cherishing the moment of getting to be with their son. When all of a sudden they hear a strange knock at the door. Joseph looks at Mary, Mary looks at Joseph. Were you expecting anybody? Were you expecting anybody? And no. Fear starting to creep into what they're thinking. Joseph grabs his walking staff that's leaning up against the wall. He grips it tightly. He begins to look outside the window, and what he sees outside the window doesn't put his heart at ease. He sees multiple camels. You need to know that in that day and age, multiple camels kind of being in a place like that was kind of the equivalent of multiple stretch limos pulling up to a small town in North Georgia. It would stick out a lot. And so when Joseph opens up the door, he's really uncertain as to who these strangers are, these people from a foreign land with strange dialects and accents. But he can tell from the anticipation on their faces, from the joy that's in the little corners of their eyes, that, that they're not here to harm, they're here for good. And they come bearing gifts, and so the first tall, what we would call wise man or magi, comes in and draws near to the manger, and this well-dressed, educated, regal presence stoops low into the dirt and places that first gift of gold, a, a gift fit for a king. And then the second tall gentleman also kneels unto the ground, getting close to the dirt, drawing near to the little tiny child. And when he gets right before him, it's, he takes a little box and he opens it up, and immediately, as soon as the box opens up, the entire room begins to smell differently. It's filled with the fragrance of a very distinct smell, the smell of frankincense. And Mary looks at Joseph, and Joseph looks at Mary because they would have known exactly what this was. They would have known that that's the aroma of the temple in Jerusalem. And they're thinking to themselves, what on earth does this mean? And why on earth is that here in this kind of place? 
We're walking through a series that we are calling Star-Crossed. We're looking at the cradle through the lens of the cross. And as we're walking through this series, we're looking at the three gifts that the Magi bring of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And the first gift that we talked about last week, the gold, which symbolizes kind of the kingdom of Christ. We talked about how when the gold is presented to Jesus, that he's a king, but he's no ordinary king. But the kind of kingdom that he has come to usher in is one of substitutionary, self-sacrificial kind of love. Behold, the king of the Jews, the sign says above Jesus on the cross. And as we now get to the second gift in this Christmas series, we're going to talk about frankincense. As familiar as gold is to us and that we all have at least some notion of what being a king or royalty is... We almost last week had to deconstruct our understanding of what a king means to be able to understand it in the framework of Jesus. This week, we're kind of at ground zero. Frankincense, we don't have any kind of frame of reference for something along these lines. And so we've got to kind of start at the beginning. And so if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, if you will reach for a Bible or the one that we've provided for you, one that maybe that you've brought with you, we'd love for you to see this scripture for yourself. And as you're turning there, um, remember as we walk through this series, what we're doing in essence is basically understanding that these three gifts are signposts of what is to come, but they also foreshadow the the confrontation that happens at the end of Jesus's life, that the gift of gold foreshadows the, the kind of the kingship battle that's going to happen between Jesus and the King Caesar's representative in Pontius Pilate. And this week, we're seeing a gift that is a priestly gift, and so we're about to see a conflict that's going to happen between Jesus at the end of his life and the high priest Caiaphas. And so I invite you to listen to the word of the Lord. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law, the elders, had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And they spit in his face, struck him with their fists, Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? May God bless not only the reading and the receiving, but also the putting into practice of his holy word. 
This is a beautiful cathedral in Melbourne, Australia. And 10 years ago, out on the front steps of this cathedral, there was a group of teenagers, a bunch of people who were skateboarding out in front of the kind of the steps and on this particular area. And while they were skateboarding, there was all of a sudden a priest that just lost it. He went postal. He could not stand these kids running around and skateboarding on the church property. So he came outside. Now, you got to remember that this is 10 years ago before the vast majority of us had, you know, kind of cell phones with cameras, particularly video cameras in them. But one of these guys had a video camera. And this priest goes on a kind of tirade, a profanity-laced rant and abusive language, even some physical contact with these teenagers. I actually wanted to show you a small clip of it, but couldn't find an appropriate clip, even like a small enough portion of it that I could actually show in church. And millions and millions of people watched this on YouTube. And everybody's reaction was the same. No matter what time zone you're in, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what your country of origin is, a priest is not supposed to act like that. It's just not. We all know it. I hope you had the same kind of visceral reaction when we just read this passage today. Because this is a group of priests who act in a way that they shouldn't be acting. A priest is supposed to be a representative of, of God. It's, it's supposed to be a representative of his goodness and his holiness. The word priest, the origin of it in Hebrew, it means to stand. A priest is someone who stands in the gap of God's goodness. It's an ambassador of God's love to someone. That's what a priest does. And yet we see some unpriest-like behavior in this story. What we see is a group of priests who mock Jesus, who jeer at him, spit in his face, slap his face, and hit him in the face with their fists. They taunt him, they belittle him. There is one Hebrew scholar who says that he can identify 14 different laws that were broken in this passage. Israel was always supposed to be a kingdom of priests. All the way back to the time of Moses, there's this passage in Exodus chapter 19 where it says, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And other Israel was not supposed to be just another country. It wasn't supposed to be just another nation. It wasn't supposed to be another kingdom with priests. It was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. It wasn't supposed to be a kingdom that had priests. It was supposed to be a kingdom where people were becoming priests constantly. That was part of what was going to make God's people, Israel, so different from everyone else. On paper, this was somewhat true during the lifetime of Jesus. During the lifetime of Jesus, there were about 7,000 priests in Israel, and then there were 70 that were in the Sanhedrin, and then there was one high priest. 
And the Sanhedrin kind of moment that we see in the scripture today, this is when the, the cream of the crop are gathered, the kind of the best of the best, they're all gathered together. And, and then you have Caiaphas, the high priest. This happens at his palace home. And one of the things that you'll notice uh, in this confrontation is this is not some one rogue priest that's having a bad day. This corruption of the priesthood in Israel, it is all the way rotten to the core. And at the core of the struggle of what's happening in this kangaroo court with these trumped up charges is they're accusing Jesus of saying something that he didn't specifically say because they said that he said that he was going to tear down the temple. He didn't say that. He said the temple would be destroyed and if it was, he would rebuild it in three days. And what Jesus meant by that, only with the gift of hindsight that we can say, is that his temple, his real temple was his body and that in the resurrection, that that's how the temple would be rebuilt. The temple was always seen as the place where God's presence uniquely dwelled. Uh, Tom Wright talks about how heaven and earth interlock and overlap with one another in the temple. And Jesus is saying absolutely something radical when he is basically saying, you know that whole temple thing that you guys are really proud of over there? I'm the temple. And the high priest goes postal. He goes crazy. Did you notice in the story that he tore his clothes? Did you notice that detail? You, you see and hear this a lot in the scripture. Here's an image of a guy who is at the wailing wall in Jerusalem who has torn his clothes. Uh, people often tear their clothes in grief when they are expressing outwardly an inner emotion or spiritual state. Now the catch here in this story is that the high priest is forbidden by the law of Moses of tearing his clothes. There's a whole lot in the book of Exodus about the clothes of the priest and how those clothes are kind of holy representations of the very character and goodness of God. And so the priest is forbidden from tearing his clothes in grief or in the face of something that he sees that is wrong or unjust. And so you might be asking yourself at this point in time, that's all well and good, Rich. What on earth does that have to do with Christmas? What does that have to do with frankincense? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Frankincense was only allowed in Israel to be used in one place, in the temple. Frankincense was only allowed to be used in Israel in worship of Almighty God. Frankincense was only allowed to be used by one person in the entire nation, the high priest. When these foreigners come in from afar and they place a box of frankincense at the foot of the cradle of Jesus, this is an illegal substance. This is a banned substance. And Joseph and Mary would have immediately known as the aroma and the fragrance fills that room that someone has brought the temple to them. And they had to be asking themselves, are you kidding me? It's saying that Jesus is the high priest. This little baby in swaddling clothes is the one who is really authorized to reflect and to worship Almighty God. And that means that anyone 
under his priesthood can become a priest. I want to introduce you this morning to somebody by the name of David Sachs. Here's uh, his picture with two of his girls. This is a picture is a little older where uh, he had other children as well. And uh, David had an incredible career as an uh, internationally acclaimed photographer. Um, here's a picture of him taking a picture, which I always think is kind of funny. Um, so here is him. And he, his work was particularly uh, a gift because he would go to places where you and I wouldn't normally get to see how people live. And he would bring them close to us. Well, tragically, when David was in his 40s, he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. And because it was diagnosed so late, there was no chance for him to really have a cure. And so over time, David could no longer take pictures. And the time was drawing to a close. A friend of mine by the name of Andy Crouch, he and I serve on a board of a ministry together. Andy was called when it was those last few days of gathering around David in his home, at the bedside, close friends and family there, all gathered together holding hands, saying prayers reading scripture, singing songs. David would float in and out of consciousness. He would see them there. He would smile. He would drift off back to sleep. Andy said that vigil at his bedside was the hardest thing he's ever done and maybe the best thing that he's ever done. Later, Andy and I were having a conversation once about technology that he ended up writing a book about, and he talked about the contrast of a hospital room where somebody dies alone with the TV on and blaring versus the contrast of that little community gathered around David, a community of priests, and then Andy wrote this. We are meant to build this kind of life together. The kind of life that at the end is completely dependent upon one another. We are meant to be family. Not just marriages bound by love and children that come from them, but a wider family that invites others into our lives and even to the threshold of our very last breath to experience vulnerability and grace, sorrow and hope, singing our way homeward. We are meant not just for thin virtual connections, but for visual real connections to one another in this fleeting, temporary, and infinitely beautiful and worthwhile life. We are meant to die in one another's arms, surrounded by prayer and song, knowing beyond knowing that we are loved. We are meant for so much more than technology can ever give us, above all for the wisdom and courage that it will never give us. We are meant to spur one another along the way to a better life, the life that really is life. Why not begin living that life together now?
your calling, my calling right now is to be a kingdom of priests. You are the priesthood of all believers. My favorite David Sachs photo is this particular photo here. I want you to look at it for a little bit. This girl in Africa running down the street. She's running with a purpose. She's running with joy. She's running free. And I can't help but think that this is the kind of greeting that David got from the angels when he entered into God's presence. The pursuit of God's great love for you and for me. And I believe that we're called to run just like this girl to others to share God's presence with them, to invite them into the greatness and the glory of our God. There's a scripture that encapsulates this for me. It comes from 2 Corinthians, and it says this, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. I want to ask you a strange question today. How do you smell? Do you smell like the aroma of Christ? Long ago, they put that gift of frankincense on the floor before the cradle. And the aroma of the temple filled that little home. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the temple. And in him, we become ambassadors, priests under his authority to be able to share God's goodness and love to others. He invites us into the process that you and I are not spectators of grace, We are not people who are just here to consume his goodness. We're being enlisted as a kingdom of priests because what we learn at Bethlehem is that God's presence will go anywhere and will stoop to any level and that the temple is on the move and will run to us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this chance to listen to your word, to know of your great and explosive power, a power that reminds us that your presence is anywhere and that it's also everywhere. Thank you, God, that the temple is on the move. Thank you that you are our faithful high priest and that in you, holiness and redemption are found. God, as we gather at this table, will the aroma of Christ start to more permeate our lives? Give us the fragrance of your great love for the world. 
And so God, take these common and ordinary things and by your power, may they be changed. May we be changed. And may we leave completely changed. As we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen.